Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Arsenal Beat, the only Arsenal podcast which brings together the journalists and reporters who cover the club on a regular basis. I'm Simon Collings from the Evening Standard and I'm joined by the Telegraph, Sam Dean and Sammy Mockbull of the Daily Mail. Now, Sammy, with newcomers to the show, we always ask for a quick introduction by way of an explanation about your career to date and how long you've been covering us Arsenal. So if you could just give us an insight into, into your journey today and, and what's led you to, to where you are in your career. Okay, so um, first journalism job, I reckon about 2004, and I was a, a, a news journalist, so doing your local news. Um, a paper called the Croydon Guardian. Um, the aim was, it was always to be a, a, a sports journalist, managed to get a job uh, as a sports reporter at the ones, so basically a Surrey Comet. So my job there was to cover uh, AFC Wimbledon when they were still in the sort of the, the deeper depth of non-league. From there, went to uh, a rival local paper here called the Croydon Advertiser, which I'm sure many of you have heard of, um, where we're covering Crystal Palace. Um, and it's kind of just, it's gone on in, term, in terms of football, gone on from there, really. Joined the Daily Star, uh, spent a while there before joining the, the Mail. It's about 11, 11 years ago now just as a, as a London football reporter and was pretty much designated Arsenal sort of ever since then. So I've, I've watched them um, quite a lot over the past decade, caught the, obviously the, the, the last, uh, the last uh, embers of the, of the Arsene Wenger reign. Uh, And obviously we've gone through, I've gone through a couple of managers since. So, yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be uh, it's always an in- interesting ride with uh, with Arsenal, um, and it still is. It's still mm. a great club. It's still a great club to watch. It's still a great club to cover. Yeah, I think uh, the weekend showed us that it's never a dull moment with Arsenal. And ahead of that Tottenham game, we well the panel picked the sort of combined Arsenal and Tottenham 11s. We had four Arsenal players in it. Um, which doesn't look great now, but we'll claim a victory seeing as Martin Udegaard was one of those four players in it. Um, Sam, we'll, we'll start with you. I mean, how do you think Martin got on? He's obviously someone you, you wrote about in the wake of the game, full of praise for him, but as a performance, that's probably probably up there with his, with his best one in an Arsenal shirt so far, you'd say? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And he seems to be getting uh, better with each game, I think. Um, obviously, he scored against Olympiacos on Thursday, Wonderful twenty-five yard goal, and then, and then did the same against Tottenham. It's not just the. Um, I mean, we, we all knew. I think everyone knew. Anyone who had any idea who Odegaard was knew he'd be technically a good player. He could pass the ball, and he can sort of see gaps, and he can he can keep hold of possession under pressure. We knew he'd be able to do that, but it's it's the it's the defensive side of his game that's really stood out to me. I think, uh, and also by the sounds of it, to Mikel Arteta. Um, I mean, he was absolutely relentless in the way he was he was pressing the ball against Tottenham and just like I think in the last 10 minutes they when they brought El Nenny on they basically put Odegaard up front and said just just run after the ball just relentlessly run 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 and given how many minutes he's actually played since coming from Madrid where he hadn't played very much at all 
it's incredible the amount of fitness he's got and the, the stamina he's got, which Arteta praised afterwards. So it's, it's very simplistic way of putting it, but I think it's actually true to say that he, he plays with the ball. There's a lot of similarities to Ozil, obviously the man he's replacing the squad, left-footed, likes to drift out right, has that vision, has that ability to absorb pressure. But without it, he's a completely different animal. And I think that's what's really stood out for me. And you can see that being quite infectious for the rest of the team. Mm. I mean, that that seems to be the big takeaway. I think everyone knew Odegaard had this talent and ability on the ball, Sammy, but without the ball, he seems to fit into what Mikel Arteta wants from his players. You know, he's relentlessly pressing. Do you see that as the diff, the main difference between him and Ozil and why, you know, Arsenal moved away from a, an Ozil-like 10 to someone of an Odegaard mould? For sure, yeah. No, listen... Uh, the game has evolved, hasn't it, over the past 10 years? And, you know, Ozil is still a fantastic footballer, but I just don't think it's enough to be a fantastic footballer anymore to get into the top sides. The, the, the top teams are relentless in their work rate. And um, no disrespect to Mesut Ozil, because he, you know, he, he, he you know, assist king, he, you know, he's a fan, technically gifted footballer who can thread a ball through the, you know, the eye of a needle. But in saying that, t- t- certainly Mikel Arteta's team at the moment uh, and the way he wants to play, um, it's all about pressing. It's all about the work rate. And in Odegaard, they've got a younger version and I've got a version of someone who can do both, who is, you know, who can who can find the pass, who has got the vision of an Ozil. But then he's also prepared to do the hard yards and do the nasty work. Um, so... Um, I can see why he's made such an impact at, at, um, at Arsenal since arriving in January. Um, uh, there, was, there was always going to be a period of, of settling in, as, as there is for, for any um, overseas player who comes over, particularly on a loan, when um, the season's you know halfway done and you, you know you, you're going into it without knowing anyone, having no sort of um, having no time in pre-season to. To, to acclimatise, but with every passing week and every passing game, he's, he's, he's reaching new levels and he's improving. Um, and as it as it looks at the moment, it's you know it's been a fantastic loan signing, and um, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see the club at the very least exploring. Well, I know they want to explore the the possibility of of, of keeping him on board next season, whether that's a, a, another a sort of a season-long loan or if they can do a permanent, obviously money's tight at Arsenal, um, if they can do a permanent, uh, I'm sure they would. But um, yeah, he, 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 he's fitted in fantastically well and he's slotted in perfectly and um, he, he complements uh, Mikel Arteta's sort of game plan to a T, really. Mm. Yeah, Sammy, you, you reported that you know, Arsenal would, would certainly look into trying to keep him the transfer market for best part of a year now has been pretty, pretty depleted because of because of COVID. But do you think this summer? I mean, we talk about Mbappe, talk about Haaland. Do you think the fact that clubs will want to go after those players will actually have a trickle down effect? Where you know lower down in the market, uh, Odegaard's probably a sort of thirty million pound bracket player that we might see these sort of moves grease the wheels to get some big meals done, and that could help Arsenal if they want to if they want to keep Odegaard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's it, this summer more than ever. It's going to be a summer for for 
mate, even for you, even for you, sort of Real Madrid's, you know, you, you, the, the, you, those clubs that are sort of financially or traditionally cash rich, it's going to be, a, it's going to have to be a summer of kind of wheeling and dealing, you know, getting, getting the deals you can over the line because there's not going to be, you know, there's not going to be a lot of money flying around given the conditions that um, the market's in in the moment because of the pandemic. Um, so back to, yeah, in terms of Odegaard, if there's a deal that can be done to suit both parties, it's definitely one I think that I reckon Real Madrid, you know, I think it's pretty clear that Real Madrid um, and Zinedine Zidane doesn't view Odegaard as a as a as, as a component in his in his plans and in his team. Um, pretty, I think it's pretty clear that Mikel Arteta would <laughs> would 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 jump at the chance to have him on a on a longer term basis. So I think the the will from all parties is there. It's just whether the finances are are, are workable. I'm sure that I'm sure that I'm sure it's possible. Uh, mm. I'm sure it's possible. I think there's an um, interesting way with with Madrid being so. Um, in so much financial trouble, it was an interesting way of looking at it because the one argument is they haven't got much money to buy new players, so they're going to need to make the most of the players they already have, which obviously Odegaard is one of them and someone they've invested in for a long time. The other argument is they have no money, so they need to sell to raise money to buy the players they want. And I think, and Sammy, I think you're spot on about, about Zidane. The question is whether Zidane will be there. I think if, if Zidane goes, then that could obviously have a huge impact and it's hard to imagine any new Madrid manager coming in and going, yeah, yeah, fine, just let let, let Odegaard go. I don't, I, I, I don't want to even have a look at it. So I think if Zidane goes, I'd be, I'd be surprised if um, there's no sort of big push from Madrid to keep him there. But equally, if, I mean, Odegaard's clearly enjoying himself in the, in London. He's clearly happy. I mean, he's willing. He's doing all the post-match interviews, all the pre-match interviews, doing all these things that that he doesn't have to do because he wants to impress. He wants to. He wants to fit in nicely, as somebody said. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he ends this season. And we've seen before how um, convincing Arteta can be to players. Um, Bamiang, Saka, you know, when there are other options on the table, Arteta's got a way of getting in their minds. Even Danny Sabayos saying again that, you know, he convinced him to come back for another year. Um, uh, that, that I, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens again at all. Mm. I mean, just the last point on this, obviously... Arteta was pretty clear to Odegaard that he would get minutes. Um, he would play as a number 10 and he's, he's fulfilled that promise, but it's mean Smith Rowe is sort of shifted out to the left flank. Um, Sam, what have you made of Smith Rowe in that role? And do you think if Arsenal do keep Odegaard as, as probably they want to, could Smith Rowe be a long-term option on that left side? Or do you still think he needs to be playing as, as a 10? Um, I was quite surprised to see Freddie Jumbo's comments before the derby this week when Jumbo basically said he didn't understand why they'd signed Odegaard because they got Smith Rowe there. Um, well, firstly, because Smith Rowe's 20 and that's an incredible amount of pressure to put on someone to play that as the only guy in the squad to play that position for the next four or five months. I mean, that's unfair amount of pressure on Smith Rowe. And secondly, Smith Rowe's a versatile, um, talented player, as we saw the weekend. I think he was Arsenal's best player alongside Odegaard. The way that Odegaard sort of drifted right from a number 10 position and, and Smith Rowe drifted in with, with Tierney going wide, it sort of made two number 10s rather than one and then a winger. Um, yeah, I, I think long term, Smith Rowe's best role will be as, as a 10. But equally, I wouldn't be surprised if we see them both playing as, as central midfielders at one point behind, you know, in front of Party, for example. And I think there's, there's versatility there and there's fluidity there. But Smith Rowe's 20. He's, it's not a rush. They don't need to say, right, you are the guy to play every single week, every single game right now. 
he's doing really well. Everyone's happy with him. Crack on. <laughs> we don't. We don't. They don't need to get to the point where, you know, if he's 24, 25, then yes, okay. What's his long term position? Where's he going to play every week? How's he going to get in the England squad? Right now, I think what they're doing with him is absolutely fine, and he's playing very well. I don't. I, I don't see. I agree with Sam. I don't see the necessity. At the moment, there seems to be uh, suggestions that you know Odegaard's arrival has kind of put um, has almost sidelined Smith Rowe. I don't see it like that at all. If you're going to be a top club, if you're going to be a top team, you know you want you know you're going to, you want players of that quality scattered around the scattered around the squad and, and scattered around the pitch. And I I, I don't see necessarily as it being a fight for that one position between the two as as the as the north london derby showed us at the uh, at, at the weekend they you know they 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 work perfectly in sync with each other and the the creativity levels when they're both in the side in my opinion is kind of it's kind of has, has soared um and it's up to our setter to find a a system and to find a, a way of playing where you know you can get both of those players um, fully involved, um, and they said, but they were, they, you know, they were against Tottenham. I thought they were both fantastic. So um, I don't, I certainly don't see it as being one or the other in terms of in terms of those two. Mm. Simon, I wonder what you, I wonder what you make. Try to think in my head. Do you think it's fair to say that um, all of Arsenal's best performances this season have come with Smith Rowe playing in a team? I'm trying to think back and, you know, you think of the Chelsea game and then the little run after that when they went to West Brom, for example, and had a little, nice little winning streak around around mm. the new year. Um, and that coincided with Smith-Rowe coming in. Uh, and then since he went out a bit with a slight injury problem, the performances dipped. And I wonder what you made of that. Because obviously you, you've, you've followed Smith-Rowe very closely yourself. Yeah, I mean, well, before he came into the team, there's pretty slim, uh, slim pickings for good performances. So that makes it slightly easier. But um, I, I think he has made a big difference. And the main thing... I think he does is just the way he sort of links the play. I don't think he, he's a very, very unselfish player, similar to sort of Odegaard, but you could see with the way he played with Tierney, a lot of the runs he was making, you know, he wasn't always getting the ball, but he was creating that space so that Tierney could get in on the overlap. Um, and I think that's the main thing he does. He just keeps it very simply, links the play, doesn't try and overcomplicate things. He's, he's just a bit, a bit of sort of a glue sort of player, link sort of player that you need in the team. You know, he's not, a sensational player is going to be sort of doing all these step overs and beating men, but he's going to, he's going to formulate and work with the team. And, and it looks best, I think when he's out wide almost just because they have another creative outlet. I think before sometimes when it's sort of, you know, Aubameyang and Saka were on the wings, the opposition sort of knew, well, those are sort of players who aren't going to be trying to create things. They want to get in behind. So I, I do think it helps Arsenal a lot. Um, and I think going forward, completely agree with you guys that there's no need for Smith-Rowe's progress to be dense about a guard. He can learn off him, he can play with him. And you, if you want to be a Champions League club, which Arsenal do, you need more than one option to be playing playing number 10. So it's a no-brainer for me. I mean, those were two guys who played on Sunday, played very well as well. The obviously notable absentee was um, Pierre Aubameyang who was dropped for what was described as a breach of pre-match protocols. Um, I think everyone's seen the pictures of him stuck in traffic around North London, which is something most people can relate to, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Sammy, in terms, of, in terms of the situation, the way it was handled, um, I mean, Arteta obviously came out in his pre-match interview and explained why he had dropped Bamiang. 
he could have not done that. He could have, I think, justifiably said, you know, he'd rotated him. Lacazette played at Leicester. And I don't think people would have raised too many eyebrows. Do you think yeah. Arteta was sending a bit of a message there by, by coming out and publicly explaining why he was not playing as captain? Yeah, uh, well, 100%. I, I thought, as you said, there was, you know, they, he, he could have explained his way out of that situation quite easily. Chose not to. Um, I'm I'm pretty confident that that was, that was deliberate. He, he, he wanted to send a message to to his squad and and all, you know, and almost to just to the to you know the footballing community that he he isn't a person to be he isn't a manager to be messed with he isn't you know he isn't a manager to cross. Um, that listen that the, the result the result kind of almost almost helped uh, Aubameyang because I think there would have been a massive backlash against more of a backlash against uh, Aubameyang if they'd gone and lost that game for sure. Um, but for, yeah, listen, I it, I thought Arteta made a difficult choice. I thought he made a difficult call, but I thought he definitely made the right call. Um, no one player is is uh, at any club. Is no one player is is you know, is is bigger than the club. Um, yes, he is the captain. Yes, he is the club's top earner. But you know, in many ways, that is even more reason to turn up to arguably the biggest game of the season before anyone else and certainly on and certainly on time. Um, so that will be an interesting dynamic now, knowing, you know, what kind of how uh, self-assured uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is. Uh, it'll be an interesting dynamic to see how he, he deals with that and how he handles that. Um, this week and 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 moving forward, whether he, whether he's able just to forget about it, forget about the embarrassment of it all, uh, and get on with the season, or whether it, or whether the the yeah the embarrassment of being dropped, you know, literally minutes before the the, the kickoff and that and the issues of that being made public, whether he's able to put that to one side, it's going to be um yeah it's going to be it's going to be interesting to say the least. It's, um, I mean, I think we were all there uh, on the day Arteta was unveiled. Um, he was unveiled at the Emirates and did a big press conference. And then we did a little, a little of the daily papers, went upstairs and spoke to him a bit briefly afterwards. And he was brilliant that day talking about um, the non-negotiables and the sort of behavioural standards that he was trying to enforce. And he, that he thought clearly had, um, had slipped at the club. And you have to say he's been stuck to his word on that one. Um, we, Aubameyang is very much not the first to fall foul of those behavioural standards. Um, I mean, you think about Gwendouzi, you think about others at the top of my head, I can't think of any more, but there are, there are definitely others. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, he's, he's, he's been very sort of strict, almost militaristically strict on, on those standards. The only thing I thought about, and, I, you know, it's completely hypothetical, I just wondered if, uh, let's say this happened a year ago, before Aubameyang signed his new contract, I wonder if Arteta would feel quite so empowered to uh, to ditch him at that point <laughs> when yeah. it was such a sensitive moment in Aubameyang's sort of Arsenal career. Obviously, that's completely uh, cynical, and I'm sure Arteta, you know, even at that point, would be making very clear that these are standards that he wants to set. I mean, I asked him afterwards. I said, you know, why why is it so important to you that the players do stick by your your quite high standards, and, and what, why are you so sort of um, punishing when they don't? And he said it was about the long-term foundation of the club. If you don't set those standards in properly, then you can never have any sort of 
any uh, medium or long-term success. And I understand that to a degree. At the same time, if they lost at the weekend and Aubameyang sat on the bench, or even if they brought him on when the game at one all or one nil down, you would have felt like, hang on, you just, you've spite, you know, you've cut off your own nose to spite your face, etc. So, uh, yeah, it worked out very well for him, but uh, I can't imagine it's all. It will always be so smooth in those scenarios. Mm. I think he's in. A, I think he's in a stronger position than he was a year ago, Arteta, obviously because he's been in the job longer and he's come through that difficult patch. But also, I think because the team isn't so reliant on a Bamiang as it was last season. You know, he basically dragged them to the FA Cup. I think yeah. we've seen in the last sort of six, seven weeks or so that this team isn't completely built around a Bamiang and perhaps, you know, I think Arteta felt justified that he could he could do what he did. But what do you think now, Sammy? I mean, Arteta says he's drawn a line under it. You know, we move on. If you were in his shoes, what would you do on Thursday? Would you just put him straight back in the team and then that way you properly killed the story because then you know all of us reporting on the game go, oh, Bamiang's straight back in, he's playing again. Or do you think he maybe leaves him on the bench again because Lacazette played, scored the winning goal? I mean, how would you handle it if you were in Arteta's, Arteta's shoes? I'd play him. I'd play him. Uh, I think Arteta has has made his point to Aubameyang. I think he's made his point to the squad. Um that you know, what he the, the call on Sunday wasn't just a message to Aubameyang. It was a it was a message to everyone else as well, saying, "Look, you you know, you won't get away with that here." Um, so he's made his point, and then if the clever, th- in my opinion, the, the 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 mindful and the clever thing to do is is to draw a line under it, stick him straight back in, stick him straight back in the team. But the last thing he would want is for this story to, to, to keep to continue bubbling away and brewing. Um, he can easily nip in it, nip it in the bud on Wednesday at his press conference saying, yes, you know, he's still our captain and he's going to start. Um, he's going to start against Olympiacos on Thursday night. That will nip everything in the bud. Um, I'm sure they will have had their conversations um, privately. I know, listen, I, I know, know it's well documented now that, um, Aubameyang was one of the first out the door uh, on Sunday. Uh, made no attempt to, to to have a conversation with the manager after the game. Uh, you'd like to think that those conversations have been had or will be had before the close of uh, before the, the the game on Thursday. Um, but yeah, it makes sense in my opinion that he would um, he would stick him straight back in the team. Now, listen, you know he's still still their best. He's still their best centre forward. Um, so I, you know, he, he, he took the call. We made the right call on Sunday, but you move on, um, and you move on for the betterment of the, of the club. And I think, um, that the decision to, to, to recall him on, on Thursday would, would probably be the right one. Look, looking longer. You go, Sammy, you go. I was going to say, I, I don't. Uh, nothing I've heard ever suggests that Aubameyang's sort of disruptive influence is going to sulk and mope and be a pain in the ass. Um, but even if he did and was basically furious that he'd been dropped for the derby, thought it was totally unfair, you know, maybe he was late because he had, his kids had an issue or whatever, you know, to, to, thought it was totally unreasonable and he's fuming with Arteta. Even if he is, what's he going to do about it? You know, he's there, you know, he's got he's got years left in his contract now. Arsenal have all the power in this situation if it came to anything like that. So what are you going to do? Okay, fine, leave. Who's going to pay you that much money? Where are you going to go? Mm. <laughs> you know, what are you, what are you going to do? Not play for the team and not play well. Like it's just like it's, there's no uh, 
there's no sort of uh, bounce back in that sense. I don't think it would be odd also if he if Aubameyang was you know completely fine and like yeah no problem I'm not fussed about being dropped for the North London derby so it's completely normal that he'd be angry and annoyed but if you draw a line under it and play him you know I think you move on from it but just the last bit on on Aubameyang more longer term sort of question um, I think it's debated a bit among Arsenal fans particularly after Sunday about whether Aubameyang is a sort of an ideal captain um, for me personally I think he's I think he's a talisman I don't think he's necessarily a captain particularly given the values that Arteta seems to want to hold I know Tierney's been someone Arteta spoke about as who could be a captain in the future Sam what what do you think about Bamiang as a captain and, and longer term with the Arsenal captaincy in general really um I I, I mean, I think Aubameyang wears the armband, but I don't think he's actually the captain in terms of what he actually does. I mean, he's, he's, he's very good with the young players and he's a very big personality in the dressing room. So he's, he's important and influential in that sense. But when you watch them, you know, he's not, he's not, he's not the on-pitch leader um, by any stretch. I mean, the captain's Granit Xhaka. I know he's not the captain, um, but he is the captain, if that makes sense. He doesn't wear the armband, but he is the captain. He's the guy who talks, he is the guy who leads. And I think David Luiz is one of those as well. Um, and yeah, I think I think Tierney sort of leads by example as, as well in the way his attitude and his professionalism, his commitment to the cause, which Arteta always um, always praises. But yeah, I mean, I think I think the actual armband is more symbolic than actually um, determining any behavioural changes. I mean, f- for me, as I say, Jacques Jacques is the leader of that team. He's the natural leader behind the scenes, probably along with someone like Louise, and especially in the last sort of six months with the Brazilian contingent growing. Louis sort of growing in power in that sense but uh, yeah I mean Aubameyang wears the arm and he, he he leads the team out onto the pitch but once that game starts I don't think he's the, he's the, he's the natural leader beyond obviously scoring the goals and being up front yeah. Sammy would you would you go along with that? Yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that um as Sam says I think the the you know the armband is more of a, a symbolic gesture than a than an actual um you know uh, factual embodiment of of, of 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 a leader on the pitch. He is a talisman, but he I, I don't necessarily think he's a natural leader on the pitch. Yeah, you uh, you know, Sam's absolutely right. Granite Jack is the is the organizer in in there, and obviously Kieran Tierney's. I can see him certainly being a uh, an Arsenal captain of the of, of the of the future. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's it's important who wears um, who wears the armband. Um, I, I don't think it has been certainly in uh, in on the continent for for a number of years now. I know we still uh, put a lot of credence on it in terms of our traditions and, and who the captain is. But um, I think as football evolves, particularly over here, um, I don't think who who wears the armband is is necessarily important anymore. And if you know, if a manager can use the captaincy to to perhaps galvanise a player or get five percent more out of a player, then um, then I, I don't I don't necessarily see anything wrong with that uh, because those who lead naturally will always lead on the pitch and um, yeah, and that's how I that's how I would see it. During during the pandemic, it was it was Hector Bellerin who essentially filled the role of captain off the field in terms of um, the discussions with other captains at the clubs and you yeah. know, the PFA uh, and discussions internally about pay cuts. It was um, 
it was Bellerin, not Aubameyang, which probably says quite a lot about the, the way that Aubameyang is the leader. And that's not a criticism at all, which is different characters and different also different courses, um, which is fine. But yeah, I don't think that that armband means much more than an actual armband at this point. Yeah, and we'll have all eyes obviously on Arsenal on, on Thursday to see if Aubameyang is, is in that team for the Olympiacos game. But that concludes another episode of the Arsenal Beat. We'll be back on Thursday with a preview of the crunch WSL fixture between Arsenal and Manchester United with a third show of the week on Friday, looking back at that Olympiacos game and previewing Sunday's trip to West Ham. So until then, stay safe. <laughs>